We are going to continue in our study tonight in 2 Timothy. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 8 through 18. But I want to just review a little bit of what we've covered the last two weeks. Paul has greeted Timothy in the opening verses of this letter, his closest friend and his most trusted companion as they co-labor together for the gospel. Timothy is his true child in the faith, and there's an intimacy in that relationship. But Paul also doesn't back away from reminding him that he is an apostle of Christ, and he's commanding Timothy with authority. He's both his friend and an apostle, a representative of Christ. In his greeting, he reminds Timothy of God's grace and mercy towards him and the peace that that has resulted first with God himself, but also a peace that permeates all of life. Because we can have peace even in the midst of difficulty if we know the one who's in control of our circumstances. He reminds Timothy as well that he is thanking God for him from the place in which he's incarcerated. He longs to see him again before he's executed. He's ever mindful of Timothy's sincere faith, which dwelt first in his grandmother Lois and then in his mother Eunice. Remember we said that those ladies probably came to faith in Christ on Paul's first missionary journey as he passed through their town. Timothy's faith, like Paul's, has its foundation in the Old Testament scriptures, those scriptures that ultimately lead to Christ, to the promised one from the Old Testament. And on the basis of that sincere faith, Paul wants to stir Timothy up. He wants to remind him to use the spiritual gift that God has given him as Paul's co-worker in spreading the gospel across the Roman Empire. He reminds Timothy that the spirit that God uh, molds and shapes within us by his Holy Spirit is not one of timidity. It's not one of cowardice. Instead, it's one of power, love, and self-control. In our passage tonight, we'll see that Timothy, that Paul continues to exhort Timothy to embrace suffering, embrace suffering without shame. He points to the salvation that God has accomplished through Christ as his motivation to do that. And he also points to examples, his own example as an apostle and a couple of other examples, two bad ones and one good one at the end of chapter 1. Also in the midst of this passage that we'll look at tonight, gives Timothy two explicit commands in his ministry, uh, commands that are very important for him continuing on with the gospel after Paul has gone on to be with the Lord. So with that review and background, let's look now at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. Let's read that text together. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 
you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. You have your outline before you. We're going to walk through this passage uh, looking at these points. The first is Paul's command and example to suffer without shame. As we said earlier, Paul's already in the first part of this letter fortified Timothy by expressing his gratitude to God for him, by recognizing his sincere faith, and by reminding him of the spirit and character that the Spirit of God produces in his ministers, a spirit of power. In light of these things, he exhorts Timothy now not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Now the question, that prompts the question, why would Timothy be ashamed? Maybe a closer question to us is, why are we ashamed? Why are we ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? And one way to help us think about that is to remember Christ's own earthly ministry. He taught with great authority. He drew great multitudes of people. He had miraculous power. He healed people all over the land of Palestine. He raised people from the dead as part of his ministry. And yet, his was a ministry marked by rejection, especially by the religious leaders of Israel. And that rejection culminated with the worst kind of death, a humiliating, public humiliating death of crucifixion. For the Jews, Christ's own people, the idea of their Messiah hanging on a cross was blasphemous. Even though that's foreshadowed in the Old Testament, that's not what they had in mind of their conquering Messiah. For pagans, for the Greeks of Jesus' day, it was just plain nonsense. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. He's talking about the gospel there. The foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for signs. Christ gave them plenty of signs. That wasn't the issue. They always wanted more. They were never satisfied. And Greeks searched for wisdom. Certainly there was no wisdom to them in a crucified Messiah. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. With each of these groups, both Jews and Gentiles, possessing that kind of attitude, it's a very natural thing to be ashamed. It's a natural thing to fear that kind of rejection. I mean, you're going to be, if you embrace Christ, you're going to be publicly criticized by both Jews and Gentiles. That's really everybody. There would also be, especially for Timothy, an equal temptation to be ashamed of Paul, to want no association with this man who had preached Christ and who had ultimately been arrested by the Roman Empire as a traitor and a criminal. It's interesting, as you look at Paul and in his other letters, he takes what would be normally a badge of disgrace, the fact that he's a criminal and put in prison, and makes it a badge of honor. The Roman emperor no doubt thought that Paul was his prisoner, that possibly he even thought that by arresting Paul and ultimately executing him, that he could stop the spread 
of this foolish message. But Paul, as it says here, is the Lord's prisoner. He's there by the will of God. He's, in, he's there in prison in full accord with the Lord's own good purposes. And the Lord, no doubt, is going to use Paul's execution not to thwart the gospel, but to enhance its spread. So Paul commands Timothy not to be ashamed, not to be ashamed of the Lord, the Lord's testimony, or of Paul himself, and instead to embrace the opposition and suffering that comes with being a Christian and a minister of the gospel. Christ suffered and died for the sake of the gospel. Paul is suffering and about to die for the sake of the gospel. Timothy, as Paul's protege, as the one to whom Paul is passing his mantle, has to be willing to do the same thing. He's already suffered to a certain degree. He has to embrace that, and including the possibility of his own death. Paul's quick to add, though, that he doesn't have to do this just in his own strength. He has the power of the Spirit of God that dwells in him. He's already talked about that up in verse 7. He reminds him again to suffer for the gospel in the power of the Spirit of God. Okay? His second attack, or his second appeal, kind of the basis upon which he's calling upon him to embrace suffering, is his salvation. He uses, and he does a great job of summarizing the salvation that God's already accomplished in two verses. He uses that as motivation to Timothy to remain faithful. God is the one who saved us. God is the one who's called us with his holy calling. That is, he set us apart from sin and from the way that we were before we became believers to live a life of obedience to him and to live in a world that opposes him. This salvation, of course, is not on the basis of works. It can't be, if you think about it. It can't be according to works. We can't do anything to earn our own salvation. We certainly can't atone for our own sinfulness. Instead, our salvation, according to Paul, is according to God's purpose and grace. And when you hear those phrases, especially God's purpose, the doctrines that we normally think about that go along with that are the doctrines of election and predestination. And these are doctrines, they're difficult for us to understand. They're difficult for us to fully reconcile in our own mind, especially as we think about human beings having freedom of choice. And how can it be that God would choose before the foundation of the world those that would be saved and yet call all men to repent? It's a hard thing to reconcile in our own minds. But it's only because it's on our own minds. It's not because it's not clear in Scripture. It is crystal clear. And I want us to look at several places. We're going to look at quite a few different passages tonight in Scripture. I want to look at several places that talk about this idea of election and predestination and the way that it suits God's purpose. It actually is God's purpose. In this case, we want to look at first what Jesus said and then several places of what Paul said about these doctrines and then one place that Peter speaks about them. <clears throat> first, in John chapter 6, uh, John 6:44, Justin's already co- covered this in our morning service. <clears throat> but Jesus himself says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." No one can come to him. Now we we don't know who the elect are, and we call all men to repent. We we can't try to figure out who's chosen of God and just share the gospel with them. But it's important to recognize, especially when we're rejected for sharing Christ, that ultimately it's God's work 
God is the one that has to work in a person's heart to draw them to himself. I want to read several places now. And you might want to just jot these references down. You can also turn to them if you like. But several places in Paul's letter where he speaks about God's purpose. And he also includes these ideas of election and predestination. God's choice, the word choice, is often used in these passages. And these will be ones that I'm sure are familiar to many of you. First one is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that is believers, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Not before our lives, not before some long point in past time and history, before the world itself was created. God determined this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's why he chose us. He chose us with a purpose in mind, and that was to make us like Christ. In love, he predestined us. That is, he set out the path before us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. How? According to the kind intention of his will, not based on any merit on our part. And ultimately, too, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Notice all three of those words there in that passage that tie back to Second Timothy. God chose us. That was according to his sovereign purpose. He predestined us, and it was by his grace. Let me just read the others quickly. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. Again, that's from the beginning of time before the foundation of the world. He's chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And then a longer passage in Romans chapter 9. You remember the setting in Romans chapter 9? Paul is explaining Israel. He's basically explaining the status of Israel in light of the fact that many, many Israelites, by the time he writes this letter, has not, have not embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And the question arising, okay, we see what God has done. We see that the gospel now is going directly to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles don't have to keep the Mosaic law. They're not part of the nation of Israel. They're a different group of people. What about Israel? Why isn't Israel accepting this one, Jesus of of Nazareth, if he is indeed the Messiah. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, physical descendancy from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob was not enough by itself. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand. That's about as sovereign as you can get. 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The point there being, before either one of these children were born, and before either one of them had committed a single act of good or bad, God had already made his choice. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? It even raises the question in Paul's own mind. How can, how can man be responsible if this is the case? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then finally, First uh, Peter 1, 1 and 2, just to hear from yet another apostle and see that all these guys are saying the same thing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, foreknowledge there does not mean looking down through the tunnels of time and choosing based on that individual first choosing God. That's not what foreknowledge means. It means God taking the initiative to know somebody, to establish a relationship with them before that person is even born. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ, there's that purpose again, and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Scripture is abundantly clear that we're saved by God's choice. It's also just as clear that we're saved according to God's grace by his unmerited favor towards us. Now, I don't think this one is nearly as difficult for us to reconcile in our minds as the doctrines of election and predestination. I think, at least for me, it's, it's very easy to see that I need God's grace. I can't, by my own works and by, you know, I know how sinful I am. So there's no way that I can earn God's favor. It has to be by his grace. We want to look at some examples of this, though, that confirm what he's already talking about here in 2 Timothy. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. And then down in 21 to 24, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, it's in full accord with the law and the prophets, but this is something new. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And a passage that all of you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. This is God's work. Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So these two concepts of God's sovereign purpose and his grace Go hand in hand. God exercised his grace towards us before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be in Christ. He chose us not on the basis of merit of ours in any way, but according to the kind intention of his own will 
and his own sovereign purpose. In a particular time in history, God accomplished that redemption by sending Christ, by having him be born into the world, by ultimately making atonement for our sins through his death and abolishing death through his resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, right? It's his resurrection that guarantees our own for those that put their trust in him. At a particular time in our lives, he called us through the message of the gospel. You, you have come to know Christ, if you're here tonight as a believer, through somebody sharing the gospel with you. He converted us through the work of the Spirit, and he set, on a, set us on a new path to glory as a result of that. <clears throat> this is God's work, salvation is, from beginning to end. And perhaps the best example that we have of Paul summarizing this is in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28 through 30 has been called the unbreakable chain of salvation because these verses stretch from eternity past to eternity future. Let's read those together. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Notice that last verb is past tense, just like all the previous ones is. In the mind of God, it's a done deal. He's already glorified us. So you have these links of election and calling and justification and glorification. It's God's plan, and he's going to make sure that it is carried out. Keep in mind, Paul's purpose in reminding Timothy of all this is to keep him faithful, to keep him faithful in the midst of opposition and suffering to the ministry of the gospel. Well, he's used the truths of the gospels to motivate Timothy And now he wants to use some personal examples to do the same thing. And the first one he's going to use is himself, personal example of Paul and the commands of Paul in verses 11 through 14. He mentions the gospel at the end of verse 10, and that leads Paul to describe his relationship to that gospel. He says he was appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And it will be helpful for us to look at each one of these terms and just see a little bit of the distinction between them. There's really a lot of overlap, and it's really talking about three different aspects of one role. First, he calls himself a preacher, a chorus in the Greek. That, that's also translated as a herald. It's somebody who has a message that's ordered by somebody else. So this term stresses the boldness and public nature of Paul's ministry. And we see that very clearly as we read through the book of Acts in particular. He's also called an apostolos. And that too has the idea of one who is sent. This term stresses Paul's divine commissioning. He's commissioned by Christ himself. After appearing to him on the road to Damascus, Christ commissioned Paul as his apostle to the Gentiles through a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Now you think about that. Up until that point, Paul had been persecuting Christians. He had persecuted those who professed Christ, even bringing about their deaths. Now he's going to suffer as much as anyone for the cause of Christ. 
Let's look at that account in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, says this. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. These last verses are a good summary, again, of Paul's ministry as we read about it through the book of Acts. He, you know, he was designated as the apostle to the Gentiles, but his method was always to go to the synagogues first and to proclaim Christ to those who had the Old Testament background and should have been the ones to embrace Christ first. Now, these were largely Jewish, although there would have been some Gentile proselytes in the synagogues as, as well. I think he went to the Jews first because he knew if he went to the Gentiles first, he'd have no audience with the Jews at all. He had hard enough time as it was because he was going directly to the Gentiles. The end of Acts also stress or shows Paul testifying both before governors and kings in the Roman Empire. So he was a preacher, he was an apostle, he was also a teacher. This term stresses Paul's pastoral responsibilities as a teacher of God's revelation. It stresses the manner in which he imparted the message. And Paul himself, uh, or we see some references about this uh, as we read again in the book of Acts. We'll just look at a couple of these. Paul's own testimony to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 18 through 21, says this. When they, the Ephesian elders, had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul's ministry was largely one of teaching solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 27 he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then again in Acts chapter 28, while Paul is under house arrest, and this is how the book of Acts ends, it says in verse 30, He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Of course, we have 13 letters from the Apostle Paul in our own New Testaments, and those themselves reveal him as a masterful teacher, particularly concerning the doctrines of salvation in Christ and the mystery of the church. Because Paul fulfilled this role of apostle and preacher and teacher, Amidst great opposition from both Jews and pagans, he suffered. He suffered again and again and again. Even in those references in Acts we read, he talks about his own suffering. The most uh, complete summary that we have 
of the kind of suffering that Paul underwent is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, of course, is a letter where Paul is having to defend himself as an apostle, particularly against those that are undercutting him as a teacher and as an authority in the church. He says this beginning in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in a deep. Can you imagine? I mean, think about all that he went through and it did not deter him. It did not keep him from continuing on in faithfulness in the ministry of the gospel. I've been on frequent, frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And of course, this is in Second Corinthians, but he's in that very situation right now, as he writes Second Timothy. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. You wonder why Paul just didn't toss it in. He didn't. He couldn't. He'd been commissioned by Christ, and he wasn't going to quit. We'll see that even more clearly as we read through the rest of Second Timothy. But he suffered without shame. Why? Because of his great confidence in Christ himself. That was the key. I've been citing from uh, D. Edmund Hebert a couple of times uh, in our lessons already. I want to do that again tonight. Here's what he says. The world may regard his, that is Paul's, faith in a crucified Jesus as a thing of folly and a just cause for shame. But his personal relations with this person, he's talking about Christ, prevent any such feeling on Paul's part. This person will never put him to shame. He has permanently put his trust and confidence in him. He has been trusting him all along, and he's trusting him now in the face of impending death. Look at the last part of verse 12, 2 Timothy 1. It literally reads, he's able to guard my deposit until that day. The deposit here has been understood in two different ways. And the translation is, is different here according to which translation you're looking at. One, this whole phrase can be understood as Paul saying that his great confidence in God, he has great confidence in God that God will keep him and ultimately redeem him in the day of judgment. That's the way that many of our translations read, including the NAS that I read from. And that's a true statement. I don't think that's the statement that Paul's making in this context. The second view is stronger in light of the way that this term deposit is used both here, later down in verse 14, we'll look at that in just a minute, and also in 1 Timothy 6.20. In these contexts, the deposit is referring to what God has committed to a person and for which that person is responsible to God, ultimately. So this view takes the deposit as the gospel message, what God has entrusted to Paul as his apostle. What Paul is saying is that despite the difficulty of the times in which he lives, despite the pressure of the Roman Empire, despite the fact that he's about to be executed himself, the gospel message will be kept 
and passed on. In fact, this is the way that the ESV reads. The ESV has a better rendering here. It says, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's talking about the gospel. Again, hear what Hebert has to say. In view of his impending martyrdom and the devastating persecutions of the church, which appear inevitable, Paul is confident that the all-powerful guardian and protector, whom he has learned to trust implicitly, will himself safeguard the message which he has given. Against that day looks forward to that future day when Paul will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive his reward for his gospel labors. Paul's pointing to himself as an example. He suffered without shame for the sake of the gospel, and he's asking Timothy to do the same thing. Now he's ready to give him two explicit commands, two essential requirements to maintain ministry fidelity. The commands of Paul in verses 13 and 14, the first is retain the standard of sound words. Now, he's not talking about some fixed creedal formula here. He's simply calling upon Timothy to remember well what Paul himself had taught him and to use that as a model for his own instruction of others. He'll say the same thing as we look at the passage in 2 Timothy 2 next week. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men. And this concept of sound doctrine is something that's very important to Paul. It occurs a lot in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Precision in words matters because words express thoughts. And sound doctrine is built on sound words. That's why good Bible teachers all the way through the history of the church have taken great pains to study the original languages of Scripture, to get, as Justin explained to us this morning, what the original reading is when there's variance in the text, to go back and look at the historical setting. All of that is done to try to derive the interpretation, the right interpretation. There's only one in every case. To really try to understand what the author's original intention was. It's not unlike what a Supreme Court justice does in interpreting the Constitution. They're trying to go back to the framers' intent. And that's what a good teacher tries to do is find the original meaning of the author and communicate that. So Paul's saying to Timothy, that's what you need to do. Of course, the soundness of biblical doctrine has a direct impact on the soundness of Christian living by those who hear that doctrine and obey it. Paul also talks to Timothy about the spirit in which he's to possess this sound doctrine. It's to be a spirit of faith and love. It is possible to be very orthodox in your doctrine and not to be loving. Timothy's faith is to be focused on God and his redemptive revelation. His love is to direct him in his work of teaching and guiding others. But true love does not exclude calling out false teaching. That's something we'll talk about a little bit later. Okay, so the first command is to retain the standard of sound words. The second is to guard the treasure. That's where this term deposit shows up again. Back, uh, we've already seen it in verse 12. Now it's here again in verse 14. The deposit is the body of Christian truth that has been passed to Timothy. He's to guard it from error, to protect its purity, and to pass it on to others through sound teaching. Now back up in verse 12, we saw that Paul looked to God for the preservation of the deposit, but here 
He commands it upon Timothy. There's no contradiction there. God's guaranteed preservation of his truth does not relieve us of our responsibility to guard it. The two work together. They go hand in hand. And again, you see this trend over and over again. Paul reminds Timothy that he doesn't do this on his own power. He has the Spirit of God dwelling in him to enable him to accomplish this. Well, that brings us to the last verses of chapter 1. And this is the examples of Paul's associate. He's already pointed to his own personal example. Now he's going to talk about some examples of his, of his associates. Uh, two bad ones and one good one. Two that left him in the lurch, among many others, and one that didn't. Verse 15 says, You're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Magellus and Hermogenes. And when he talks about Asia here, he's talking about the Roman province of Asian Minor, where he did much of his initial missionary work. And it was home to many of the churches to whom he writes in the letters that we have in our Bibles. Ephesus was, in fact, the capital of Asia Minor, an extremely important city for the Christian church as the gospel spread across the Roman Empire. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, longer than in any other city in which he ministered. And particularly, if you think about a map of that area, Ephesus is really geographically in the center of it, and it made it very easy to travel to all the different places where Paul had oversight of these churches. We also know that from 1 Timothy, Timothy himself spent considerable time at Ephesus. In fact, it's very likely that that's where he was as he received the second letter from Paul. Many of those who had worked with Paul in this area of Asia Minor had abandoned him. They had abandoned him when he was arrested. They did not want to be connected with him in any way, for they felt that they too might be arrested. They ran the risk of that. They made no effort to visit him while he was in prison in Rome. It may even be that Paul asked some of these men to come to Rome and to testify on his behalf. But the apparent hopelessness of Paul's position and the fear of consequences to themselves kept them from doing that. Paul specifically mentions Phygelus and Hermogenes as members of this group. They're not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, so we don't have a lot of information about them. But their desertion, they obviously were known by Timothy, and their desertion must have been especially painful for Paul for him to single them out like that. Now, in contrast to these examples of those who had abandoned Paul, Anesiphorus, who was also an Ephesian, was one that did not. His name means help giver, and he had lived up to that title. He displayed great courage, not only by uh, not being ashamed of Paul's change, chains, but by risking his life to search for him and to minister to him while he was in this Roman prison. Paul was so encouraged by this that he pronounced as a prayer blessing, not only upon Onesiphorus, but upon his whole household. And you think about that, it makes sense. Uh, whatever household Onesiphorus was in, there would be expense and effort and personal risk for the whole family, and the whole family would have borne the cost of that. He must have visited Paul multiple times while he was in his dungeon because Paul says that he was refreshed often by him. And the fact that he had to diligently seek Paul and then find him demonstrates that this is a very different imprisonment from the one we read about at the end of Acts. There, everyone came to Paul freely. They knew where he was. 
Paul prays again for Onesiphorus in verse 18, asking that the Lord to grant him mercy on that final day of judgment to repay him for the kindnesses that he had shown Paul in a way that Paul himself could not do. Onesiphorus had not only encouraged Paul in a dungeon in Rome, but he also had faithfully ministered to the body of Christ there at Ephesus. And Timothy knew about that. Clearly, Onesimus was not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of Paul as his prisoner. And Paul is pointing to him as an example for Timothy to follow. Let's summarize four lessons that we can take from this passage that we've looked at tonight. First, being mindful of God's salvation will sustain us when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's the way that Paul uses this in this passage in 2 Timothy. In the same way, it can motivate us to be faithful to Christ. Secondly, in addition to these truths of the gospel, personal examples of others encourage us to stay faithful as we suffer. Our instruction and maturity in the faith grows as we grow in our understanding in the Word of God. It also grows as we see it lived out by others. God will use others to stimulate us to love and good deeds. He'll use you to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Now the flip side of that is bad examples. Paul says in another place that bad company corrupts good morals. But even bad examples can be held up and learned from as Paul did uh, in this passage in the, in the sense of don't be like these two guys be like a Nesiphorus thirdly sound doctrine is built on sound words and sound words come from the word of God a good minister of God's word will pay close attention to God's word live by it then teach it to others and Paul had already exhorted Timothy about this in his first letter 1 Timothy 4 verses 15 and 16 He said to Timothy, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay pay close attention to yourself, that is to how you live, and the example that you set for others, and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And then lastly, the gospel message has to be guarded. It is continually under attack, not just from outside the church, we kind of expect that, but even from within. We just finished our New Testament survey class on Sunday mornings in the the Bible Institute, and this semester we covered Paul's epistles and the missionary journeys that he was on as he wrote those letters. And one of the things that came across to me in teaching this class this time was just how often false teaching has to be dealt with in the New Testament. The church has been plagued with false teaching from very early on, and it just gets worse with the passage of time. As I said, we, we really don't expect the world to embrace Christianity. We see it's rejected in the Bible. We see it's rejected in our own day. We don't expect them to know the truth, and we do expect opposition to Christ and his gospel. But we have to be even more vigilant about false teaching arising within the church. Oftentimes, that's what the New Testament uh, instruction is dealing with. And I want us to look at uh, a couple of examples of that. 
In that same passage that we looked at earlier in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem at the city of Miletus, he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He's talking about within the church. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves. These were the elders. These were the ones that Paul and Timothy and Titus and others had appointed within the church. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul also speaks about this in his second letter to the Corinthians. And he identifies the ultimate source of this false teaching there. 2 Corinthians 11, which is also a passage that we looked at earlier, verses 12 through 15. This is Paul writing again. But what I am doing I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. He's speaking against false teachers even in this context. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Of course, this is it's a supernatural battle. And that's why we have these references, multiple references in Second Timothy to the Spirit of God enabling us. He's the one that provides the enablement for us to, to make this battle of truth against error. It is our responsibility to know that truth, to pass it on to others in its purest form. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have passed that truth down to us even from the Apostle Paul through Timothy and all of their co-workers, ultimately the gospel passed to us. And we're here in this generation responsible to pass it along to others, pass it along to those in our family, pass it along to those in our church family, pass it along even to those that you are still calling and bringing to yourself. Help us, we pray, Father, in this task. We recognize that we have the Spirit of God that lives in us and enables us that illumines us as we study your word. Help us to be faithful, even as we face opposition, even when we have to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Lord, keep us encouraged. Help us to follow Paul's example and keep our eyes fixed upon that future day of judgment when we can hear you say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, we're privileged to suffer for the name of Christ. Help us not to be ashamed of that, but to embrace it, just as Paul encouraged Timothy to do. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.